Hey everybody, this is Nick Sarantos from the Chicago Podcast Network. Just a little heads up that we will be having our big event on December 17th at the Pickwick Theater in Park Ridge at 5 South Prospect Road. And uh, it is going to be a fun night. We're going to be doing giveaways, trivia contests, uh, costume contests, and uh, be uh, doing a raffle for anybody who signs up for the podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to be a big night. So I hope you guys all come out and check it out. And uh, other than that, ladies and gentlemen, starting today up until the release of Episode 7, AJ and I will be reviewing, complaining, talking about the original six Star Wars movies, by which we mean the three good ones and the three not-so-good ones, starting today with Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. And the discussion will rely heavily on the standard nerd culture of making fun of many of the decisions that were made by George Lucas in the making of the movie. Now, one... A little bit of data for you is the fact that this episode was recorded the morning after I watched the movie. So it is fresh in my brain, and I hope you enjoy this show. Other than that, ladies and gentlemen, December 17th, Pickwick Theater in Park Ridge. Get your tickets on movietickets.com. And here we go. Hey everybody, thank you for downloading this special edition of Outfront with AJ and Nick. I am Nick Sorrentos, Editor-in-Chief and host of the Chicago Podcast Network, joined over the interwebs by my good buddy AJ Signeri. And uh, AJ, I've done this a bunch of different ways, so this time, why don't you just do it? Say hi, hi to people. There hi it people. Is. There we go. All right. So today, we're going to start getting ready for our big event on December 17th at the Pickwick Theater, where AJ will be there, I will be there, we're going to be doing the podcast in the lobby, uh, we'll be doing giveaways, all sorts of fun activities on the day and the movie comes out. Now, if you're one of the people who learns about the podcast at the theater or through the news or whatever, this podcast can be its own thing, but we decided to kind of... Go through the whole Star Wars saga as it exists right now, minus the novels and TV shows, and review each one individually. And today we are starting with what is, in my opinion, the incorrectly considered worst Star Wars movie. I think it's the next one that we'll be doing, but this is up there as far as movies that people hate, to the point where... I learned this recently, AJ, in an interview with Patton Oswalt. There is a a nerd out there who invented what is called the machete cut. Have you heard of this? No. All right, no. The, the machete cut is this idea that instead of watching them in chronological or in episode order, you should watch Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Episode 2, Episode 3, and then Return of the Jedi. What's missing from that list? Episode 1. They're saying that Episode 1 should just not count. It shouldn't. Okay. I'm going to go through the plot, and then we'll talk about this. For those of you who haven't seen that movie, and you are fortunate, the movie begins with arguably the one of the worst mistakes ever. So, I want to do this, AJ. If you watch the original Star Wars movie, the 1977 Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope, yes. it opens with this crawl. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil Galactic Empire. During the battle, Rebel spies managed to steal secret plans of the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. Pursued by the Empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. Right? That's the opening of Star Wars. Let me read you Episode 1's crawl. Turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. The taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute. Hoping to resolve this matter with a blockade of deadly battleships, the greedy trade federations have stopped all shipping to the small planet of Naboo. While the Congress of the Republic endlessly debates this alarming chain of events, the secret chancellor has secretly dispatched two Jedi Knights, the guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy, to settle the conflict. Now, just on that, just on that, we are dealing with two very different movies. So, I think 
I don't know where to begin because I mean that is a good start about it. But here's the two things: one, the intro alone, you know, unless you're really, 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 really a geek about Star Wars, that will probably excite you. You know, I am really, really, really a geek about Star Wars, and that did not excite me. But, I mean, saying things like, you know, trade routes, taxation, you know, intergalactic taxation is not a very sexy thing to say. Well, no, think about it. It has the words taxation, right? resolve this matter, and endlessly debate. They use the term endlessly. Right. And you're like, maybe not what you want in your fantasy action movie is endless debate. I mean, so... All right, all right, let me do the plot really quick. Let's get this out of the way. Uh, basically, the movie starts off, Qui-Gon Jinn, played by Liam Neeson and his giant penis, uh, as long as Ewan McGregor, fresh out of train spotting, play two Jedi Knights, Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi, who go to this planet to basically negotiate with the racist-as-hell Japanese characters that are blockading the planet of Naboo, which has two species on it. They get ambushed. While they're being ambushed, the Emperor shows up and tells the Trade Federation kill the Jedi, and they obviously don't kill the Jedi, who land on the planet, meet Jar Jar Binks, the worst character in the history of the Star Wars franchise, go down to a city that's made up of, like, fish people, who then give them a ship due to some Jedi mind trickery. They go to the capital planet, they save the Queen in the middle of the street, which is weird, and then they take off in a very computer-generated sperm blackbird looking thing from the X-Men which then goes and has to emergency land on Tatooine where they find a young boy who's strong in the force who goes and races with NASCAR and then wins his freedom from slavery and then is told that he's going to be a Jedi. During all this you learn that his mother is apparently the Virgin Mary who's never had sex with a man, but was still impregnated by the Force, which you and I will get into a little bit later, because that's weird. Uh, We discover that the Force isn't some mystical thing, but in fact a parasite that all Jedi have. And then we go to Coruscant, where there's like a whole bunch of C-SPAN activities that ends with the Prime Minister or the Chancellor getting a vote of no confidence, and then the guy who will eventually become the Emperor, wins. But I don't know if you're supposed to know that, but you did know that. It's weird. Then they go back to Naboo. Big fight. Jedi fight Darth Maul. Kill Darth Maul in another big mistake of the movie franchise. Anakin Skywalker somehow flies a ship at eight years old up into a space battle to win the battle, even though no one really acknowledges that he does that from that point forward. And then there's a funeral scene because while they're fighting Darth Maul, Liam Neeson's giant penis is cut in half, which leads to Obi-Wan Kenobi cutting Darth Maul in half. And then we have a funeral scene, and there's like a whole thing of who was killed, the Sith or his, or the, only the apprentice. Movie ends. That is the plot of Star Wars Episode One, summed up by me very quickly. Would you say I did a fair representation of that piece of crap movie? Yeah, I mean, even you explained it, and you tell stories quite well. That was just a very boring plot. Right, like nothing happens. So, let's start with the first little bit, where we... The, the, we talked about the crawl for a second there, but realistically, the movie starts... And the first Star Wars movie opens with a battle on that ship, right? Like, there's just lasers flying everywhere, everything's going crazy, and you're in. This starts off, and two Jedi very calmly walk and sit down at a coffee table. And are served coffee in what can only be described, by the way. Were you... I know you said you fell asleep during this movie watching it. I did! Twice! Which I don't blame you. But were you awake early enough on to notice the giant metal penis that the robot brought into the room? Yes. You saw that, right? Like, that was clearly a metal dick. I mean, I had to, like, fast, not fast, I had to rewind it and look at it again. Like, yeah, that, that's... Like, there's that's, two shot glasses and a giant, like, phallic thermos. And you're like, why is that robot that looks like C-3PO holding a metal dick? Like, uh, when, do the Jedis need to be probed before we can go any further? Like, what the hell is going on in this movie? And then they're, okay, let's, let's talk... 
we, we do politics on our show, and you and I are very liberal. Let's just talk for a second, AJ, about the racist-ass Japanese characters, right? I mean, those Trade Federation guys are clearly supposed to be Japanese. Or, or, or am I just looking into something too much? I don't know. I, I th- but this is, this is the whole conundrum about the whole movie in itself. I really feel to this day that this was George Lucas's idea of trying to do something in a near 21st century film. Because... When he did the original three, um, you know, CGI and all that technology was at its somewhat peak as, as well as trying to manufacture some things to make those movies go. Now you have computer animation, you can do all this stuff, and I really feel that George Lucas tried too hard to do this movie. You know, I mean, it was a very busy movie in terms of there was a lot of complexity to it. There was um, uh, a lot of compressed scenes with a lot of people and a lot of fighting that should never have happened. And and the one you're just talking about, you know, when you see the Empire ship shooting the Rebel ship, you know, in Star Wars, the New Hope. You didn't need to know the story. You knew what was going on. You know, and I think visuals like that serves a better purpose simplistically than... Ten ten minutes of exposition. Phantom Menace. Well, yeah, and then you have have these, these choices that are made with certain characters that you're just like, why would you take it to that? Like, okay, the character of Jar Jar Binks is universally considered by many to be the worst character in all of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, not hard to see why. And it's not the guy who voices him fault. It's whoever decided that every time Jar Jar is on screen, he has to be doing something stupid. Mm-hmm. And it gets to the point where you're like, this doesn't need to be there. And it, and it stinks because the truth is, as you watch this movie, Liam Neeson is giving a pretty damn good performance. Oh, yeah. You know, he's good in the movie, but he's surrounded by a kid. The the kid who plays Anakin is not very good, uh, but he has that Spielberg feel where, you know how in all those Spielberg kid movies, like the kids aren't necessarily the best actors, but they're believable in their roles? Right. He's got a little bit of that, but there are lines that the kid is given that even a 10-year-old should have been able to look at the director and go, I wouldn't, no human being talks like that. Like just, But even to that point, you know, maybe you can help me on this one. Who do you think was driving the story? In other words, you know, when you're screenwriting, you're telling a story through somebody, you know, and in Star Wars you can have that lead with Han Solo or Luke Skywalker, you know? Who in Phantom Menace was really driving that story? Who was actually the one who was guiding us through Phantom Menace? Like, who's the character we're supposed to identify with? Yeah. That's a great question. I think, originally, it's supposed to be Obi-Wan Kenobi. But but you can't tell. (laughs) Well, and he's not in enough of the movie to be that. It's Liam Neeson's movie. He's the star of the movie. And that's fine, because I love Liam Neeson. And actually, I think what he's done since 1999, like, thinking of him as the character from Taken while I was watching it this time, for the first time in, I don't know, 10 years, probably longer, it, I enjoyed the movie a little bit more because I was thinking, well, every time Liam Neeson did anything, I was like, I have a certain set of skills, and those skills make me one kick-ass Jedi. <laughs> but the rest of the movie, you're, you're going, all right, so I think I'm supposed to be chilling with Obi-Wan, but he spends two-thirds of the movie just sitting on the ship answering the phone. Like, he doesn't do anything. He's just sitting on a ship waiting for Liam Neeson to call and be like, yeah, so I found this kid, and I need you to analyze the midichlorians in his... Which, okay... I don't want to spend a whole time getting into the midichlorian thing, but when you were growing up, before this movie came out, what did you think made a Jedi a Jedi? Like, did you think 
pirate or thing. It was to me. It was always like I kind of pictured how we have people who go to Tibet and meet with the Dalai Lama, like that kind of mysticism, right? Like you just you're more in tune with nature, kind of thing. And this one, no, 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 it's a virus. You have a virus in your blood, and if you have enough of this virus, you have the force. Well, then you don't really earn it, do you? I don't know. I never really thought about that. I mean, if I, I would say, you know, I kind of, being a Jedi was like, um, like any other Marvel superhero, you know, you're kind of accidentally given something, you know, through whatever means you got your special power from, you know? Um, that's how I kind of viewed it. I would probably view that as, is, you know, you're kind of selected by accident or um, you were just chosen, whether that was on you consciously or someone else giving you something. There's, there's, uh, I see what you're saying with that, and, and I guess to each person it's personal because the best thing about it was no explanation was ever necessary, right? Right. That's the important thing I, I that to me that I think George Lucas lost is that we don't need explanations for everything, George. We don't care. No one cares why a Jedi can do what he does. We just need to know what he can do or she can do. Well, I, th- I really think this was George Lucas's first draft, and people just went with it. Right. Like nobody said no. Nobody yeah, said you can't. George have- Lucas. <laughs> yeah. Well, nobody said George, you can't have a Rastafarian Roger Rabbit running around looking like an idiot. You know, it's like his museum. It's like, oh, this is perfect. Yeah. We'll have it right here. Yeah. And it's just like, the more you go through this film, and, and again, this is all still pretty much the stuff that's on Naboo and Tatooine. We're not even getting to the Senate stuff, which I want to touch on a little bit just because of the politics of it. But the as the movie goes and, and you're watching it, I remember watching this in 1999. I saw it three times on opening day, man. Uh I theater hopped into it a second time and then went and saw it with my friends later that night. And I remember trying to convince myself that this was a good movie. Like, and the older I get, the more I'm like, this is just bad. And the problem with it is, there is a couple scenes in the movie that are actually really thrilling. The pod race scene is actually really well done. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. No, I mean, there were certain aspects of it that was good, and that was one of them, so I agree with that. And the fight with Darth Maul at the end is awesome. Oh, I mean... With Duel of the Fates playing. I mean, if they did a really shitty job of any lightsaber fight, then I think that would have just ruined the next two movies. Right, They, they probably wouldn't have even come out. No, but I didn't like how it was kind of reflective of the last lightsaber fight between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. You know, it was kind of like, oh, so you took something you did before and you kind of retooled it for this movie. Right. And you did it in a way... But with a, but with a double... Yeah, with a, with a tag te- and, a, and a tag team on the other side. And, you know, I do. there are parts in that fight that I really like, but the characters in this movie are what really hurt it. Uh, Natalie Portman, who I think in the second and third movie does a much better job with her character, is uninteresting in this movie. There, there's nothing interesting about the character of Padme slash Queen Amidala, right? Like, did you at any point go, well, this is a strong leader, and if you're going to make somebody the character, like, this is the youngest queen in the history of your planet, she should have some gravitas, which she does not have in this movie. No, and again, it goes back to what I just mentioned about you know, a character guiding you through the movie. She's another person that really didn't guide anything. You know, there was nothing there. At first, I at first was, thought it was um, the uh, the slave in um, with Jabba the Hutt. What do you mean? The green slave. You thought that that was... The, that was Natalie Portman's character. Really? Well, just the way like the headdress came out and everything. Oh, okay. Yeah, her, like, testi- like, no, her testicle. No, hair. that can't be right. <laughs> yeah, her 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 testicle hair, her her scrotum yeah. hair that hangs down like two sets of balls. Yeah, like, I was like, I, I was, yeah. Like, There's many problems with Natalie Portman's character, and again, it goes back to 
because this was the first, quote-unquote, first movie in the Star Wars series, I think Lucas just brought in people just to really say, hey, we have Liam Neeson, we have Nellie Portman, we have Hugh McGregor. Samuel L. Jackson, we're just going to have him sit in a chair. You know, because, Which, hey, okay, I can have we talk about that? Let's secondly, it's Star Wars. How are you going to say no to Star Wars? Let's talk about that for a second, by the way. You, you cast Samuel L. Jackson as a mother-effing Jedi. Right? Oh, I'm sorry, it's Sam Jackson. It's a motherfucking Jedi. Right? It's Samuel L. Jackson. And what does he do for this movie? He sits in a chair. That's it. He has two scenes in this movie. And in both instances, he's sitting quietly talking to Yoda. That's it. It's a waste of him, and he immediately steals the screen when he appears, and you're like, no, I want to watch more of him. And they don't do it, and he just he does nothing. He's just there. And you're like, okay, maybe this will pay off later, maybe not, but as you're watching this really boring movie, they're like, oh, shit, Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, no, I don't, I don't care. And Yoda, Yoda is just sitting in a chair in all the scenes you see him in. Two people that you're legitimately interested in seeing do stuff who do nothing. They shoo, like you're saying, they force everything into this movie. Like, like you're saying, I feel like George Lucas wrote a draft and was like, yeah, I'll just have Jabba the Hutt be there even though it doesn't really make sense for the story. He's not going to do anything, but hey, we get to see Jabba. Okay, great. And then it's like, we're going to have Sam Jackson sit in a chair. Well, why would you cast him in that role if he's just going to sit in a chair? I don't know, because I want to have Sam Jackson in the movie. Okay, fine. And by the time you get to the end of the movie, you're like, I, I don't know what happened in this movie. I just know I didn't like it. I mean, I, I like. I want to compare just for a moment what we're just we're talking about and the Muppet TV show currently because I think it really drives the point of if you're going to do like references like Jabba the Hutt, you know, you just don't throw them in there because oh, there's Jabba the Hutt. That's great. You know, there was an episode in the last Muppets TV show where, you know, Kermit the Frog goes, you know, I just turned my backyard into something very nostalgic and everything. And it was like the swamp. And he played, you know, the rainbow song, you know. But there was a lead up to that reference, you know. They earned it. Exactly. Whereas if you're going to do, like, say, Jabba the Hutt, lead up to that, like, there has to be suspense and buildups. Like, you know, there's a guy we need to talk to, blah, blah, blah. Then you go into, like, a cantina or some shady-looking village. Or even his you palace. Go, you know? And it's like, there's Jabba. It's like, oh, Jabba. But instead, he's just wheeled. He, he just slugs his way out and does gentlemen start their end. It, it's literally the beginning of a NASCAR race. He's like, all right, we got this celebrity. It's time to start your engines. Jabba, say start your engines. And that, that's what happened. It, it, it's like there are so many choices in this movie that were made that are just wrong for what happens later. You know, even having, in my opinion, I understand that you want to have R2-D2 in the movie. I get that. And you want to have 3PO in the movie. I get that. Because they're tributes to what happened before. But here's the problem. You have told people that this is a prequel. This happens before the original three movies that you saw when you were a kid. Why doesn't C-3PO know who Luke Skywalker is? Why doesn't C-3PO know who Leia is? Why doesn't R2-D2 know who any of those people are? Why don't they tell Luke Skywalker when they first meet him, hey, we knew your dad before he became a dick. And, or was, by which I mean was played by Hayden Dipshit. Mm-hmm. The, the way that they do that, and you go... Okay, I get that you want to have these guys in the movie, but you've established a universe. There are rules to storytelling, George. And you can't just say, well, these guys were around the entire time. Because then the question immediately becomes, well, why didn't they do anything later on? It's just, it's, it's, it's poor dis- filmmaking. And this, was, this was made in 99, right? Yeah, it was released. Uh, hold on, I got it right here. Was it released in 99 or made in 1995? No, it was written in 1995. It took four years to make and was released on May 28, 1999, 16 years after Return of the Jedi and 22 years after the release of the first Star Wars. That's what I thought. So this, if I remember correctly, around that time, 
this was like I feel like the first instance of someone making a movie and making it into a series, right? And and this is an every this is a great model of what not to do when you're building up a series. You you're know, you're, even you're, though you're, you're talking about like three original episodes, you're, right? You're talking about the idea that this was the first kind of movie from that time period that was this is going to be part of a franchise. We are not just doing one movie. We know that there are going to be at least two more of these. That's what you're talking about? Right. So I mean, okay. you know, this is where I think the Avenger movie series does well. You know, that they can build suspense. They know when to reference certain things. They know to add, oh, we're going to have, we know we're going to have Thanos, but we're not going to say it right away, but we're going to put him in this movie, but we're going to build up to it and making people being very suspenseful or on the edge of their seat saying, I want to see Thanos, even though we're going to see him later on. And then you start seeing him. And other Marvel movies as well, you know, with Guardians of the Galaxy, you know. Thanos no, there's and... a there's a truth in what you're saying, in in and of the fact that guys like me who've read comics their entire lives, yeah, I know who Thanos is, but I have friends, uh, and even you, AJ, you're not the biggest comic book fan in the world, but you have read comics, you know who Thanos is. Mm-hmm. But most people don't read comics. Most people, until that first, the end of the first Avengers, had never seen or heard of the character Thanos. Now he's a pop culture touch. People know who that character is, and they've done that through slow building and earning that point, which is what the Marvel series does well. But you're right; this movie is a great example of, all right, well, we're going to launch an entire franchise off of this one movie, so we've got to do all of our universe building right now, and it doesn't work because there's just too much going on. And because you're constantly having people having to explain things in three paragraph exposition statements, the movie doesn't work. Like, there's only so many times I can hear somebody explain. Like, there's a there's a scene in this movie that's there's no better example of it. My roommate Pat pointed out that, like, they they crowbar in the Jar Jar humor, right? Mm-hmm. In 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 there's a scene in this movie where after they've gone to Coruscant for C-SPAN and they're leaving to go back to Naboo, which. To, to be clear, the plot of this movie is we need to get the queen off of this planet because it's too dangerous for her here. And she needs to go to Coruscant, the, the city planet, to argue her case to the galaxy. And they're like, all right, cool. And they go and they, you know, series of adventures, they go to go do that. They land. She gives a three-minute, not even speech, like a four-sentence thing of I need help on my planet. And the chancellor goes, well, we need more information. We can't just take your word for it. And then she moves her a vote of no confidence in the Chancellor. And then, well, now I have to go back to Naboo. You mean that place we just spent the last two hours trying to not be? You're just going to, like, lost, turn around and go back? Like, it makes no sense. Like, why leave in the first place? The, 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 that kind of stuff drives you crazy. But there's a scene when they're getting ready to leave where... Everyone's all, you know, we've got to get back to Naboo. Time is of the essence. We've got to get back before more people die. And as they're getting ready, Liam Neeson gets grabbed by little Anakin Skywalker and goes, Master uh, Master Qui-Gon, I heard Yoda mentions called something called midichlorians. What are those? And then there's like a three-minute scene where Liam Neeson, while a ship is getting ready to take off, has to explain what they are to a little kid. Because, you know, in the middle of a time-sensitive mission, AJ, you're going to stop for five minutes to do some universe building with a 10-year-old. Like, why isn't that conversation while we're walking, Aaron Sorkin style? It's just the the whole thing, every time they, 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 it feels like the movie gets a few points where it starts to go really well, and then, all right, now stop. And people just talk for 10 minutes and explain what the hell is going on. It, right. it, it drives me nuts. Is there, when you were watching it before you fell asleep, is there something in the movie that stuck out to you as being unbelievably good? Like something that you really, really liked? No. <laughs> no. Um, although, having said that, you know, I had to go back to my slightly younger self you know, when I first saw it. And I think what probably did stand out the most was more of the CGI to it, you know, because 
as I said earlier, you know, this is one of the first Lucas films with Star Wars that you're adding actual animation to a movie, you know, and trying to see it for the first time and what that one looks like was a little bit of awe, you know, that you can now create lands and now you can create um, different universes and galaxies and you can multiply people to have bigger armies and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, Star Wars, when you start seeing armies, you start seeing, you know, stormtroopers fighting, but you don't really get a sense of, like, how big the Empire is. Whereas, you know, you see it in Phantom Menace, you start seeing the depth of what the Empire is really about. Yeah, that's that's fair. Although I would say that it becomes... I feel like this is the first example of it starts to become a crutch for Hollywood where instead of us doing anything real, let's do it all on a green screen. And there well, are anyone could argue that really. I mean, when when that for I mean when that CGI is a crutch. I mean, what's the face it? I mean, you're just doing half the work that you really want to do to make a really good artistic film in my in my view. And and the story, I think, suffers from it, as do some of the people's performances. And but the the CGI works in this one. It's when they they went back into the special editions where they they started throwing it randomly into the backgrounds of like Star Wars and Empire, where it doesn't it doesn't work nearly as well. But in this movie, I see what you're saying. Like you're at least like when they're on Coruscant, you at least get an idea of the size of that planet, right? Like it makes sense that it's that big. Yeah, whereas, you know, we're talking, what, 1977, where everything was flat. You know, they had to use studio or natural settings. Or matte paintings. You know, yeah, I mean, in order to convey, you know, the visual story, you know. Whereas this, you add three dimension to it, now you have a really wider perspective of the visual context of... You know, this is what the Empire is. This is what this planet is. This is where that galaxy is, you know? I mean, and you can remaster some of the detail work on some of the characters a little bit better than you could have done in the 70s. My roommate pointed out, and I was curious to talk to you about this because you you always talk about the cinematography of a, of a film. He noticed, because he went to film school, that a lot of this movie, due to the fact that they're shooting on green screen... You know, speaking to what you're talking about, as much as you're getting this great scope in the background, the movie is shot surprisingly tight. Like, the camera is, yeah. is exceedingly close on a lot of characters most of the film, which, is a, which, with everything going on in the background, gives it a weird, open, claustrophobic feeling. I don't know how else to describe it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, no, and that's true, and I think... I really think Phantom Menace was done ahead of its time in that say in saying that if Phantom Menace was done today with having better Adobe sound, having better um, camera technology and photography technology with widescreen and everything else, I think everything that's done then and put it today would make things a lot better because camera shots were so tight because that's what they had to do back with the first three movies. You know, all those shots were very tight to a degree because you're focusing on that one frame of each of the characters. You know, when you're with Scott Luke, you know, the camera's following Luke. We're with Han Solo, you're following Han Solo, you know. Whereas in 99, in the 90s, with this film, you know, you can't do that. You have to step back and get a more clear picture. You can still focus on the character with the camera shot, but you can step back a little bit and actually pan out more to give it that depth it needs. I would think we both agree, though, that the problem with this movie is not the cinematography. It's the writing and the story. Oh, God, yes. I mean, the, I mean the, the, the dialogue in this movie is so bad. I mean, it's so bad. And I mean, this is not demeaning this person, but Kevin Smith could have wrote this better than Lucas would have. Well, because it would have sounded like two real people having a conversation. You know, right? Or, 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 or at least sharing information in a way that makes sense. Like, you've got scenes where, 
How, how, the, the only scenes that really, where the dialogue feels realistic is the scenes where Natalie Portman, when she's still not officially the queen, where she's still undercover as the handmaiden or whatever. Yeah. She's got scenes with Liam Neeson where she's being kind of a bitch to him, and it works. You believe that she's that person, right? Well, it's Natalie Portman. Right, and she's a great actress. And then, and Liam Neeson can act with anybody. And then there's a couple scenes with Obi-Wan Kenobi and, uh, I keep calling him Obi-Wan, with Ewan McGregor and Liam Neeson that are really good. But the second you start introducing, and then, oh, for the record, the the guy who plays Chancellor uh, Palpatine, who eventually becomes the Emperor, to, to me, and, and we got to get into that in a second too, but here's the thing, he's an actual, legitimate, Royal Shakespearean theater you know, Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen kind of actor, right? And you get the idea as he's through this movie just looking at all the other actors in the film going, you people don't know how to act, like, at all. Like, none of you people are playing a character. You're just reading lines. Like, I felt really bad for that guy. But here's, here to me is actually one of the biggest issues I have with this movie as a fan of all of Star Wars, AJ. You start this movie, and they go to Coruscant, and they're going to meet the senator from Naboo. Who's going to help them? And he walks onto screen. And they introduce him. Here is Senator Palpatine. Now, if you're a fan of the Star Wars universe, even lightly, you know that the Emperor's name is Palpatine, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So he's presented as a good guy with a mysterious motivation. But when you watched this movie... Do you think you're supposed to know that he eventually becomes the Emperor? Or do you think you're supposed to think he's never going to be... Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to respond to that. Um, it's, it's the most confusing thing in a really bad movie to me. It's the most confusing thing. Because they present it as, like, oh, who is this guy? But in your head, you're like, well, that guy's the Emperor. He's clearly the Sith Lord. Like, you, he's the guy telling Darth Maul what to do. We know that. Everyone knows that. But you're acting like we're not, we, we're not supposed to know that. Well, it goes back to the writing. Exactly. It's so bad. I, I, the, you know, and, 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 I'm, and you know, I'm not a screenwriter, but I know what good writing looks like. That, that, yeah, just because, listen, that, <laughs> that, that to me is one of the least things. Because you haven't done it, you can't criticize. Bull. I watch enough movies in my life to know the difference <laughs> between good writing and bad. And That's this the is thing, just you know, I mean, looking at other Lucas films, it's like, George, have you, do, do you not know how to write? I mean, you've done this, you've done that, what's wrong with this? Well, the, the stories go that on the original Star Wars, for example, Harrison Ford made up most of Han Solo's dialogue. Like, do you know that? I didn't hear that part. Yeah, like the story goes that Han Solo, that Harrison Ford, when he was playing Han Solo, would go to George Lucas and... And George Lucas would say, well, no, that's not how the line's written, Harrison. And Harrison Ford would go, just because you write this shit doesn't mean I can fucking say it. <laughs> and, and it's just like, all right, well, that sounds about right. And, he, and apparently Mark Hamill always likes to tell the story that uh, he would always ask for permission to change a line. And George would say no. And Harrison Ford would look at him and go, just change the goddamn line. And it'll, it'll sound better anyway. And it's just like, yeah, that makes sense. And by the time you get to this, like everyone's just so happy. Like, like you're saying, like, like when the first draft comes out, and everyone's like, oh no, it's George Lucas. We we can totally count on on doing what he says, and it'll totally work. And it's just like, no, his dialogue is is, I guess, stilted is the best way to put it. It's just it feels so wooden. Like, you know what it feels like, man? I think this is the best way to put it. It feels like every single character is the same person because they're they're all written the same. Does that does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean with sci-fi and fantasy films, you can't write a story based on the person you want in your movie. In other words, if you're having Liam Neeson, you don't write what Liam Neeson has done in his previous body of work, you know? You construct a story and you hope that the actor who's going to play that role would mold around that because you're telling an actual sci-fi fantasy story, you know? So And you respect you the write, actor enough to, to generate the backstory himself. Right. You 
No, I mean, you don't have Sam Jackson come in because it's Sam Uffin Jackson, you know? But you have Sam Jackson in there because he knows how to play a guy or a character who can be a badass. That's right. what you do. You you write on the theme of what you want your characters to be, not the person you want. There's other films you can do that with, but, but sci-fi and fantasy films you just can't, in my view. It, oh, I see, I see what you're saying. So, like, you can you can want Samuel Jackson to play the part of Mace Windu, but you can't write the part of Mace Windu because you want Sam Jackson. Exactly. Which is what happens in this movie. There are a number of... Okay, I see what you're saying. And you're exactly... You're 100% correct. I want Sam Jackson in this movie. So I'm going to create this character who's just going to be Samuel L. Jackson. Well, that doesn't really work in the environment that you're trying to build. Because it's an outlier in this world. Because you, And he does. He he plays it as well as he can. He's Samuel L. Jackson. He's not, it's not like he's a bad actor. But there's only so much you can do when it's written as almost a caricature of your real self. Right, you know, I mean, you know, Sam Jackson in the Avengers movie, I think that's the only to tailor to a certain audience and everything, but when you have Sam Jackson in the movie Coach Carter, you know, they wrote that for Sam Jackson. You know, because they want that badass person who can talk the real talk, who wants that kind of personality in the basketball coach they're trying to portray, you know. You just don't throw Sam Jackson in Star Wars because, hey, you're not going to say no to Star Wars, but we're going to write this because it's you, you know? But and then have, and then have so fair, these guys are asking, maybe asking to be in the movie, and they're trying to negotiate, hey, I won't do this unless you do this. Well, they're, they're so it's not right. So I'm not going to put 100% on the screenwriting's fault, but maybe 90% of it. <laughs> There, there comes a point with a movie like this where you have to ask, at what, at what point did it get you know reviewed by a studio who went, yeah, this is okay. There's, a, there's a great podcast out there called How Did This Get Made, and they, and they have these conversations all the time, and they're really you know intelligent conversations, and they work really well. And in a situation like this movie, you go, people saw this before it came out, and nobody went, Jar Jar Banks needs to be cut out of this movie. He just needs to be cut out of this movie because every scene that he's in ruins the movie. Every scene. Like, just, it, it cheapens the story. And he doesn't contribute anything. Uh, the, again, the R2-D2 thing, the mystery of the Emperor. The movie is so filled with problems that by the end of the film, you're just like, I don't care about any of these people. And the one guy I did care about, you killed at the end. So, not to mention the only other cool thing in the movie, which was Darth Maul, you also killed at the end. So the only thing left for me to hang my hat on as a fan of this is that, oh, there will be more Star Wars. Hopefully they'll get it right next time. Do you remember what the budget for that film was? For episode one? Yeah. I can tell you right now because I got it open. The budget was $115 million. It right. made one point billion. It made $1.2 billion. And it made how much in the box office? $1.2 billion. It made a billion dollars at the box office, but that includes a couple re-releases. Well, just and I bring that up because you know I'm also I, I'm also curious of a film like this on you know how much they gross at the box office and what their budget was because it's kind of telling of both you know the studio as well as the film itself you know so obviously it's Star Wars, so people want to see it because it's been like forever and a day since a new Star Wars came out, but still, when you had that but really shitty screenwriting, <laughs> um, you have to ask a lot of questions. You know, is it, who's really driving it, the name? Or, you know, are we just being oblivious to, you know, certain nuances of the film? Well, there's a, there's a great uh, interview I heard with Chris Jericho, and he was talking about how people complain about what they get paid at WrestleMania, that, oh, well, I was the main event and I should be paid more. And his line was, he goes, listen, 
Most pay-per-views, I'll give you that the two stars sell the pay-per-view. But WrestleMania sells itself. People are going to buy WrestleMania no matter who is on the card. So giving people money for doing it doesn't make sense. And I feel like Star Wars is the same thing. People are going to go see it because it's Star Wars. And just because it made a billion dollars, don't think that your movie was a success. It's not. Episode 1 is not a successful movie. Financially, it's a success. But in every other term, it's a failure. It is universally made fun of by... Every everybody who watches it, no one watches it and thinks that it's good. It, and you know, here we are. It's nineteen ninety nine. So what? We're sixteen years later from this movie, mm-hmm. and and it's considered one of the worst films of all time. And the truth is, it's not even the worst of the prequels. I'm telling you, man. When you watch episode two, that's the worst of all of them, because. It serves no purpose. There's like just this one at least has like it's like a pilot episode of a TV show. It introduces some new characters. It does a lot of universe building. There's backstory on some stuff, and it works uh, to build a universe at least. Not well, but at least there's a foundation. Episode two does nothing important. There's no, it's nothing. Uh, but I will say this before we get out of here. We got about you know 15, 20 minutes left in the show, and I want to. It's hard to explain to people, AJ, who are younger than us, what the hype was for this movie. Because it's very similar to what's going on right now in pop culture with Episode 7. But do you remember like, how big the marketing was for this movie before it came out? Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember comic book stores were like having posters and they were doing certain um, special event things for people to go to see the film. Um, my friends and I even stayed overnight at Showplace 16 in Rockford um, in tents. You were one of those people? For two days. That's awesome. I'm proud of you. We're ten deep in our line. You know, we all had tents, you know, and we all brought food and our own water and everything just to stay in line. And then we had the one friend who come and deliver us pizza or sandwiches or something, you know? Um, Because, I mean, this was, like, really something exciting. Because now we were of that age to see a whole new generation of war fans, you know? Versus, like, our parents who saw it. And when Phantom Menace came out, you know, this was like our generation to actually own, if you will, the uh, Star Wars series now and everything. Because it was passed down by our parents and we had to saw it and we were so excited and everything. Phantom Mass is coming up as like, oh, we can now watch it. And then when you saw it, a lot of them got excited. Some of them didn't care about the cinematography, the screenwriting and all that. They just want to enjoy watching a Star Wars film. Whereas myself and my friends were like, this is good, but what the fuck? No, no, I think think part of it was that when the movie came out, and and, and again, the marketing for this thing was insane. Like, I remember toys as far as the eye could see in every place you went. Uh, I I remember, I mean, you got to remember, this is still, MTV would still do music videos. Do you remember, they debuted the Duel of the Fates music video on Total Request Live with Carson Daly. Yeah, I I stopped watching TRL. And I went back and specifically watched that episode. Like, I I, I hadn't watched TRL in, like, three years. But they were like, we're going to be doing something Star Wars. And I remember I went home from school that... And then they scheduled it to take place at, like, 4.30 so all the kids could be home from school to watch it. And, like, that's how big it was. But what you're talking about, I really think that this is one of those movies that when people walked out of the theater, because of all of the hype leading up to it, all of the excitement leading up to it, that we all tried to... Like you said, you and your friends were like, it's good... But, and I remember that being the general sentiment of the movie when you left, is that everyone was trying to be like, it was good, but this. It was good, but that. It was good, but I could have done this. And then as time has kind of gone on, you go back and you look at it, you're like, no, this movie's just bad. It's just bad. Like, it's not good, but it's just bad. Oh, I know. And, and, and the more you, it, it, it makes you angry, <laughs> 
to think about like I waited my in my instance, you know, I waited my entire life to watch a new Star Wars movie. My entire life to that point. And I, I think when in 1999 I would have been 17. So it's like you were right there and you, and you wanted like you said, I wanted to own a friend like this is my Star Wars. And realistically, as I get older, do you know what our generation's Star Wars really is, AJ? Our generation specifically. And it's going to make you mad when I say it. It's the Matrix. I'm not mad about that. I can see that. The first one I'll give you, but not the second one or the third one. But I don't know. All right, so this... No, I I, I would say that because, I mean, that, the Matrix... um, was it good? Um, sci-fi film, storyline, everything. Yeah, except but- except for the last two. But I mean, <laughs> but I mean, the, the first one was good, and you know, then you know, the, the last second, the third one, they're just trying too hard. Yeah. All right, I want to. We're getting some technical stuff, so I want to get close to finish thing up, this thing up. And we're going to be doing uh, episode two podcast coming up in a couple days, so we've got to suffer through that one, and then we can start getting into where they're at least watchable with episode three. I think episode three is actually okay. Uh, it, it's not nearly as bad as episodes ones and two. But final thoughts, AJ, on episode one, the Phantom Menace. Um, it's sleeper. So um, if you're going to watch it again. Make sure you have some coffee next to you. <laughs> My final thought on the movie is that uh, Liam Neeson is fantastic, and Ewan McGregor is perfectly cast as a young Alec Guinness. Other than that, oh, and Darth Maul is awesome and should not have died and should have appeared in the two sequels and died in Revenge of the Sith uh, in place of General Grievous. If you don't kill Darth Maul at the end of this movie, the next two movies are much better if he's there. That's that's the other thing that I would say about this movie. Should not have killed Darth Maul at the end. That's true. Other than that, uh, I hope you guys had fun listening to us rip on a 16-year-old movie. And I uh, can't wait to look forward, uh, AJ, for the next couple days when we rip on a 14-year-old movie. So, there it is. That sounds, that sounds really bad, like we're picking on 16- and 14-year-olds. <laughs> well, they, they, they should have stayed in school and maybe gotten a better education. Other than that, uh, AJ, I will talk to you on the other side, and uh, we'll be doing episode two in a couple days. Ladies and gentlemen, and, uh, say goodbye to the people, AJ. Bye, people. A little bit of maintenance for everybody. On December 17th, we will be at the Pickwick Theater. You can get your tickets on movietickets.com, and uh, it'll be the 7 o'clock show on December 17th. Podcast will begin recording at 5. We'll be doing a raffle, costume contest, trivia, and then I will get to go on stage and end the raffle and help, hopefully be able to help introduce the movie in my own beautiful way. Other than that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Out Front with AJ and Nick uh, here on the Chicago Podcast Network. Other than that, we out! It's 106 miles to Chicago. we got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it.